So as part of our series, looking at the vision of this church, looking at the vision of Riverside, we've been asking questions about our city and about how we can live out the vision that we believe God set before us to be a church that reflects and transforms Birmingham because people belong to communities where they're thriving. And today we're looking at this question, can we live the kind of lives that our city longs for? Can we live the kind of lives that our city longs for? I wonder what you feel are the things our city longs for. When you think about it, when you reflect about it, there will be many, many things in our city. Even this week, we've seen how much people are longing for climate change. We've seen how one young girl, one young girl can bring a global movement together. And if ever we are in doubt that we personally on our own can make a difference, surely that is a huge example. And I know some of you were there at the march this week uh, looking at climate change and how we can stand against it. What is our city longing for? I've guessed, looking as well at the passage, at three things that I'm pretty sure our city will be longing for and that we are longing for. One is authenticity, one is justice, and one is relationship. And there will be many others, but we look at a heart's cry that we find in us for authenticity. It's been said that the greatest evidence for Christianity is in Christians. Sheldon Van Orken says the best argument for Christ and Christians is Christians themselves. It is their joy, their certainty, their justice, their passion, their completeness that argues for Christ. <laughs> there seems to be all sorts of things going on. It's very exciting. Um, but also the best argument against Christianity is what? Christians. When we are somber, joyless, judgmental, narrow, oppressive, Christianity dies a thousand deaths, he says. That hits me, doesn't it, you? And I often watch, some of you know, I have a slight penchant occasionally for the odd reality TV. I'm getting prayer for it. I'm nearly through it. But occasionally I do watch a bit of reality TV. You can judge me. That's fine. Although we've just learned you're not supposed to. But when I do watch any of that, I think, how do they forget the cameras are there? Has anyone not told them what program they're on? They seem sort of surprised that they're caught out or, oh, somebody watched me do that. Well, you're on a program where there are cameras following you around, so that will happen. But I wonder if, in a way, this passage is a bit saying people are going to be watching your lives. We are in a city that is watching every time you say, I'm a follower of Christ. Even if you've got a sticker on your car, whatever it is, you are almost saying, I will be the visibility of Christ in this city. And at the root of this passage, and we thank God for this before we started to read, actually in verse one, this is where we can all gain hope. It says, out of the mercy of Christ, we become these living sacrifices. So we're all right because we're coming from a place of mercy and grace. But we've got this city that is crying out for what is real and what is authentic and what isn't hypocritical. So in a way, we need to live the same lives as our lips profess. And that's tough for us. I've been wrestling with something in my own life even this week where I'm wrestling with pride. 
And, you know, we know what's one of the uber sins, isn't it? It's not, not easy when you're wrestling with it. And God has made me laugh about it because my phone app, which is some of you know, Bible in one year, is stuck on the seven sins of pride. I can't refresh it. I can't get my new one before getting through reading every single day the seven dangers of pride. That's horrible because I don't want to hear about it. I just want to carry on being full of pride. But God is on my case. Why? Because he loves me. And every time we are disciplined, every time God asks us to overcome evil with good, every time he says, hate what is evil, he's doing it for our good. He's loving us in a way that is tenacious for our good. Emily Sandes just released this song. If we're listening to the cries of the cities across the world, this is what she says. Are you sick and tired of being lied to? Getting kind of bored of being ignored? Can't find the tribe that you belong to? Oh, my friend, you're not alone. Are you tired of working for the minimum? Has your heart adjusted to the dark? I love that. Well, does it make you sick they kill the innocent? Oh, my friend, you're not alone. And I particularly like that bit that says, has your heart adjusted to the dark? Because I think as Christians, that can happen to us too easily too. I don't know what, what faith Emily professes, but I do know that's a heartfelt thing. Have we got a little bit too adjusted to injustice, a little bit too adjusted to the darkness around us? Because actually, if we are the hope of the world in Christ. We cannot let our eyes adjust to the darkness. And the beginning of this passage, one of my favorite bits of it, um, doesn't say that, but I put that in. It doesn't talk about mud. This is about Brexit to me. Now, you may not think when you look at this picture about Brexit, but it says, how deep is the mud? It depends on who you ask. We all go through things in a different way. And we've got one dog absolutely immersed in mud there and one standing above it. And I'd just like to say, as we look at clinging to what is good, as we look at hating what is evil, I found it really helpful when we had the referendum, when Tim preached and said, we have to stay together on this and we have to love one another. And I've heard radio programs even this week where they've talked about friends who have totally fallen out since Brexit, people whose Christmases were different this year because the family is divided on Brexit. And we have an opportunity here <clears throat> within this passage to say we choose to love anyway. We choose to disagree, but do it in love. At the start of this passage, it says that love must be sincere. It must be authentic. So if our city is looking for authenticity, we have it when we love Christ. We have it when we come to him with a sincere heart. We have it in the way the cross shapes our relationships. If we know that we are loved, if we know, and I hope you do know, and if you don't, do hear this. God loves you profoundly this morning. He died for you. And in the cross, we have something that shapes every relationship you and I have. Every single relationship. That toughest relationship that you're thinking even now, no, not that one, can be cross-shaped, if you like, in Christ. Why? Because he saw all that was wrong with you and loved you anyway. And you see all that is wrong with that person. And there may be brutal things wrong and really hard things going on. And yet, love must be sincere. And do we grit our teeth and try teeth and teeth and try and do it? 
No, it's organic from our relationship with the Father. It's organic from how we interact with the Holy Spirit. It's not a mechanical change, if you like. It's an organic change that happens every time you and I pray, every time we declare words as we've been doing brilliantly with the worship team this morning. And I'm just so grateful to hear some insights from them on why they do what they do and serve us in the way that they do. And I loved what Ben said about the fact that actually our praises confuse the work of the enemy. If we are going to be this people of light going through our city, creating an appetite, creating a stir for good, what is godly, then actually the enemy does need to be thwarted. He does need to be confused. Pete Gregg talks about um, the message version uh, of Matthew 6. And he talks about the fact that um, the, the message version of Matthew 6 is about going away before God in a closed room and not role-playing before him, not play-acting before him. He says, don't let your prayers be role-play or performance. Let them be real. And I think there's something in that that really releases us to just let our prayers be authentic and real. And as we come to hate what is evil, this is tough for us, I think, as Emily Sunday's words said. How do you and I hate it? In the original Greek of this, it says abhor or have horror at. Are we still horrified by evil when we see it? Because it actually says that Jesus snorted at evil. That sounds a bit weird, doesn't he? But he saw evil, whether it was in the temple, whether it was at the tomb of Lazarus. He said he snorted at death because he thought death had won and overcame it. So we hear that Jesus went around not just opposing evil, but almost having a physical reaction to it and saying, no, I will hate it. I will abhor it. And I wondered as we respond to this text this morning, whether there's something about praying for us that we would have that absolute abhorring of evil that horror for evil and exploitation, that horror for injustice, because if love is sincere, it will come. Jesus was way more angry than us. Did you know that? He was way more angry than us. Why? Because he was way more loving than us. Because if you really love your child, your friend, your spouse, you will hate anything that hurts them and evil hurts us. So Jesus hates the evil. And when you and I struggle with a relationship, I think the challenge, and I, I'm still working on this myself, is to hate the evil and almost take it out of the person. To say, this is unfair, this is unjust, this is unfair, but the person is loved by God. They're a child of the living God hate what is evil. And the opposite of that is cling to what is God, cling to what is good, cling to your quiet times, cling to your prayer times, your life group, your triplet, your community group, because they will help you with this. They will help us to cling to love and what is good. E.F. Gifford puts it brilliantly. He says, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. That's a great quote. That actually it's from love that we hate evil. It's from clinging to what is good and loving it. The passage says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. 
that actually that zeal of God, I think my friends who are not Christians are looking for something way more distinctive than we offer them sometimes. They're looking for something really countercultural, really passionate, really full of zeal. Some of you know my story was when I was 19 years old and I'd written Christianity off as wet. I thought it was a social crutch. I thought it was all sorts of weird things. And there were people in my life at the time who were praying for me. But when I went and worked with seven actors who were all full on out for Jesus. They were attractive. They were funny. They were talented. But more than any of that, they loved Jesus. And I remember dropping a stage weight on my foot and swearing loudly. I remember talking about a relationship I was in at the moment, very naturally as if, no, and they did not judge me. But what they did is they looked hurt. They looked hurt by it. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Let things still offend us. Don't let's stop being offended. And they loved me for those few days. And my story, uh, which I'll tell you perhaps another day if you don't already know it, was that I was leaving. I was going away from them. I, I'd booked a train ticket actually to leave because I said I will not be a hypocrite. And love, the love of Christ, floored me through them. So if you like, they were living the sort of lives that my soul was longing for. And that's our challenge today from scripture is how do we live those lives? Lives that create that kind of appetite, but also that kind of disease that actually what they have is something so different that actually our spiritual fervor remains alive. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Are we concerned about justice or are we concerned about our ego? That's a good one to choose, isn't it, that I read this week. Are we concerned about justice? I mean, that person has wronged me, therefore that's unjust and that may well be so. Or are we actually looking at our ego? Because our egos are easily bruised, aren't they? But actually justice in the Bible is very clear that we can seek justice where? From God. If you look in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, Saul is fleeing in the cave. He goes to relieve himself. Yes, we do read that in the Bible. He goes into the cave and who's there? His enemy, David, lurking in the shadows with his men. And his men say, there's the opportunity. You've got him. Of all the times, you can take your revenge now and kill him. And David just tears Saul's robe in silence. And then he meets him on the mountaintop and he says to him, what? He says, I did not take your life. Because God is a God of justice. He will be the one that will set this straight. And he said, I did not hurt you physically, but I let God do it. In other words, we can trust God to put things right. We can trust him with his eternal justice. Why? Again, because our relationships are cross-shaped. Because Jesus has forgiven us because he's gone and conquered death, as we sung earlier. He hated death. He snorted at it. That's the phrase in the Greek. He snorted at it. He hated it. He still does. So he overcomes it with good. Uh, I have a friend whose daughter is going off to university. She was in MIF for a long time, and uh, she was going off this week, as many are, packing the car up. Uh, my friend and her husband were there waiting for this lovely girl to be ready to go off to university because she was kind of integral to the plot, and she was missing. <laughs> so they've got a car packed up, and some of you are nodding, saying, I know how that feels, ready to say goodbye, a little bit emotional maybe, and the person is missing. Where was she? 
she was giving cards to the homeless guy in Moseley that she got to know called Stephen and wanted to leave him knowing he was loved. She walked to the cricket ground to give the man that we all see saying God is love and perhaps some of us smile and wave. She's his friend. She doesn't just smile and wave, she's his friend. So she went to say goodbye to him and give him a card. We were giving out cards at Mosley last night, which were about praying for three people. She got it slightly wrong and gave that card to one of the homeless people that she was praying for. Now, that's not quite what it was intended for, but do you see what I mean? I find that extraordinary. In the last few days and the last few hours before she's going off to uni, she's thinking about blessing her community She's hating what has happened to them. She's hating what is evil. And she's not only clinging to what is good, but she's overcoming evil with good. And she would be mortified if she knew I'd probably get in big trouble for telling me that. I didn't actually ask permission, but I just heard it and thought, what an amazing thing to have done. The message from this uh, passage says, discover beauty in every person. I think if you remember nothing else from this talk, remember that. Discover beauty in every person. That's what she's done there. She's discovered beauty in everyone, every person. The passage says, you know, associate yourselves with people from different social strata, with people of lower position. And in a way, that is what she's doing. We're going to just listen briefly to a very short extract from Father Gregory Boyle. He has done probably the greatest work in gang reconciliation in the whole of America as a follower of Christ. He has had gang members that have tried to kill each other working alongside each other in a kitchen. He's got amazing stories. Watch his whole TED talk. We haven't got time for that, but this is just a tiny extract from it. Last year, you know, at the cafe, we had a visit from Diane Keaton, the Oscar-winning actress, uh, movie star, Annie Hall, Godfather movies. And she's there with a regular guy who's there once a week. And her waitress this day is Glinda. And Glinda's a homegirl, been there, done that, uh, tattooed, been to prison, a felon, a parolee. She doesn't know who Diane Keaton is. And so she's taking her order. And Diane Keaton says, what do you recommend? And uh, Glinda rattles off the three platillos that she particularly likes. And and Diane Keaton says, I'll have that second one. That sounds good. And then something dawns on Glenda at exactly that moment. She says, wait a minute. I, I feel like I know you from somewhere. Like maybe we've met. <laughs> and uh, Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces, you know, that people think they've seen before. And then Glenda goes, no, now I know. We were locked up together. <laughs> uh, that just took my breath away when I heard it. And uh, I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings since that moment. <laughs> but suddenly kinship so quickly, Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress, exactly what God had in mind. And if you'll permit me to uh, speak for God, uh, Jesus says it pretty clearly, that you may be one, that's the whole thing, that you may be one, that's the hope anyway. All of us are called to be what Alice Miller, the late great child psychologist, calls enlightened witnesses, people who through your kindness and tenderness and focused, attentive love return people to themselves. You don't hold the bar up and ask anybody to measure up. You just show up 
and you hold the mirror up and you tell people the truth, you say, you are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then you watch people become that truth. You watch them inhabit that truth. And no bullet can pierce it. No four-prison wall can keep it out. And death can't touch it because it's huge. But sometimes you have to reach in and dismantle messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way so that the soul can feel its worth. I love that last line that he says, beautiful man, I thoroughly recommend uh, Father Gregory Boyle, working alongside people that were enemies, but are learning friendship, learning as he puts it, the kinship of the loving father, the kinship that God offers. C.S. Lewis says, you asked for a loving father and you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you happiness in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. Not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. A love that made the worlds. I love that. You know I love C.S. Lewis anyway. But I love that. What a... F I mean, he, the love that that guy represents there is... God is Father, yes, he is benevolent, he is compassionate, but he's way more. This love is fierce. His love for you is fierce today. And I wonder as we respond to this, as we look at the life that our city longs for us to lead, lives of love, it comes from accepting that love for ourselves. It comes from breathing in the fact that you are loved, accepted, and forgiven. It comes, if you like, from the very start of this passage to love what is, what is good, to love from the heart, to love sincerely. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is asking us to die to the things of self, the things of evil, the things of ego, and to live for justice, to live for good, to overcome evil with good. And as we close, my favorite verse perhaps of this passage is overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. Paul says to the Romans, do not be overcome by it. How apt is that for us today? You only have to put the news on for that to feel real, don't you? To just feel, I'm overcome by this. I don't know what to do. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is not a passive statement, is it? It's an active statement. We cannot be indifferent to evil if we're going to overcome it with good. Overcome in the original text is a military expression that Paul uses. In other words, set yourselves up. Does that excite you? You don't look that excited. Maybe that's my fault. But I am excited by that because we've got a mission. Even today when we leave here, we have a mission, a commission, if you like, 
to overcome evil with good. Whether we're giving a card to a homeless person, whether we're loving that really difficult relative who absolutely does seem the most ungrateful person in the world, the most difficult. How do we overcome evil with good? How do we, there's a few of you laughing there, how do we speak words of blessing when cursing is what we want to say? How do we even walk away from a situation where we have every right to say that was wrong, that was unfair, that person was wrong, and somehow turn it around to speak words of blessing for them. It's a radical way to live, isn't it? Out of all the faiths, our faith, I believe, is the most radical. And I looked into many when I was exploring Christianity. Why? Because of this. Because of this forgiveness that's at the heart of our faith, that's there for you today, but it's there for the people too, that we are struggling, really struggling to forgive, that out of his mercy, we become those living sacrifices. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be one as Christ himself asks us.